Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful day, this day that we celebrate and that we remember the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead and that because he is risen, then we also can have that new life. Just as a, a chick breaking out from a shell, Lord, just for us, we can have that knowledge that we're no longer confined by sin and by the fear of death, but we've been set free and we can truly start to live our lives. Lord, we just ask now your blessing upon this time of study. Lord, speak to our hearts, we pray. Challenge us, excite us, Lord, with these wonderful truths that we look at this morning. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, so hopefully the, the screen is up. You can see uh, the, 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 the slides which we'll be going through this morning. So a study of the resurrection of Jesus, obviously very applicable for this day. In the book of Corinthians, in chapter 15, um, Paul there makes this declaration. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and then he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. All right? This is a great, great statement. Of course, the, the gospel is defined in this sentence, and we're told that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Well, Christ died on the feast of Passover, and we're told that Christ became literally our Passover, just as the Jews would shed the blood of a lamb, an innocent lamb, uh, so Jesus' blood was shed for us. And in fact, the Passover was set up by God originally to point to Jesus in the first place. So those scriptures, some 1,400 years before Jesus came, the time of Moses, uh, the time of the Passover, the Exodus from Egypt, all of that was looking forward to what was going to come over a 1,000 years in the future when Jesus would come and be our Passover on the very day those Passover lambs were being offered a sacrifice. The verse tells us that, according to our scriptures, and that he was buried now, of course, as we get to the, the next day after the day of the crucifixion, as it gets to the evening, Jesus was put into the ground. Jesus had already said that just as a grain of wheat uh, has to, it will abide alone. But if it's put into the ground, then it can bring forth much life, much fruit. Jesus has done just that for us. And on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Jesus' body was put into the ground as it gets to the evening. And then we're told, Paul says, and then he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Well, which scriptures? Well, not least the feast of first fruits, which told of the, the first fruits of the ground of the land being offered up. And of course, Jesus is the first fruits, Paul tells us elsewhere, of those that have uh, risen from the dead. In fact, there's the passage we read earlier from 1 Corinthians 15. So all of these verses and many others, there's many other verses throughout the Old Testament that all point to that which we see here, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day. And that, that last part is the, the, the real capstone, isn't it? That he rose again. No other religious leader of any religion has ever risen from the dead. You know, you can go around the world and you can visit the graves and the tombs of religious leaders from all sorts of eras of history. But you go to Jerusalem and you'll find an empty tomb. Jesus is not there. He rose from the dead. Now, if you just remember a few weeks ago, in fact, last Sunday, we were looking at Palm Sunday. Uh, and in fulfillment of Gabriel's prophecy that was given to Daniel in chapter 9, Jesus presented himself as the Messiah of Israel on the very day that Gabriel had foretold it would happen. Again, this was some 500 years in the future. Gabriel gives Daniel this incredible prophecy. So the Jews should have been aware of this day. Now, we know that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He allowed himself to be worshipped as the Messiah. And it was the only day in his ministry that he actually allowed that. He intentionally arranged the whole event. Of course, the triumphal entry, as we looked already, was on the 10th of the month. Now, that was the very day that the sacrificial lambs from the fields around Bethlehem were being taken and inspected, ready for the Passover sacrifice. So on the 10th, all the Jews in their families, they were all taking a lamb. That lamb had to have been inspected. It had to have been pronounced as being pure, without blemish, without any defect, so they could be offered on the 14th, a few days later. So on the day that Jesus is acknowledged by his disciples and worshipped as the Messiah, the day he's taken, well, so the lambs from around these fields of Bethlehem. Those fields around Bethlehem, by the way, very significant. They're the fields where David grew up, pasturing and looking after his sheep, uh, just caring for those sheep. Those lambs 
had a very specific purpose. They weren't just regular lambs to be used for food or whatever. The lambs in the, the hills around Bethlehem were to be used for the temple sacrifices. And of course, David has this care of them. It's just some really interesting things that come out through Psalms and the prophetic verses that David gives us. But we'll just carry on. So the Feast of Passover, we've said already, it foreshadows Christ's death, his sacrificial death, on the 14th. So they were to take the lambs on the 10th, keep them, and then on the 14th, those lambs were to be killed and offered to God. Their blood was to be shed. Jesus, of course, was able to celebrate, as we saw on Thursday evening, uh, both the Passover with his disciples and become the Passover lamb because there was a 24-hour window in which they could offer this sacrifice. And for Jesus, as he meets with the disciples on the Wednesday evening in the upper room, they celebrate the Passover. The new Jewish day begins in the evening, so it's still the same day in the Jewish calendar as it rolls over to the Thursday, and that's the day that Jesus was crucified. Again, with that word in uh, Exodus 12 is very specific. The lamb that was to be offered had to be offered between. The word is bayan, uh, between the evenings. And again, Paul states that Christ became our Passover. Now, interesting, just another comment about these lambs. Uh, Josephus, uh, the Jewish historian, um, wrote a large volume of work and uh, he was respected by the Romans. Um, he records that over 250,000 lambs were sacrificed in the Passover celebrations in certain years, certainly the years that he was aware that he records of. That's an incredible number of lambs. But what's really interesting, it's been estimated that in order to do that, there'd have been typically, and this is a number that a, com- a number of commentators have put forward, they reckon there'd have been about 144 priests from the tribe of Levi that uh, were to offer these lambs on Passover for the the people so they would literally the people would come up the priest would then kill the lamb literally just slit the throat the blood would be shed and then the people would take the lamb back to their own home they would uh, do what they had to do they would roast the lamb uh, ready for passover in their own families Um, now that would mean that they would be killing approximately six lambs a minute okay so that's one lamb roughly every 10 seconds as the people would bring the lambs up the priest would just slit the throat of this lamb and then the lamb would be taken away they would just they would sprinkle the blood uh, at that point and then the lamb would be taken back to the families that means that this process would have gone on interestingly for about six hours and the time they'd have started would have been about nine o'clock in the morning and then have gone on till about three o'clock in the afternoon with the blood of these lambs being shed. And what's so significant about all of that is it's the very period of time that Jesus was on the cross where his blood was being shed as our Passover lamb. The lambs, again, that all spoke of what he was accomplishing, their blood was being shed in Jerusalem. Just as a, another aside, this area around Bethlehem as we've said already, was an area very special because these lambs weren't just regular lambs. There was a tower on the way into Bethlehem, a place called Migdalida, literally just on the outskirts of the, of the town. This tower was a lookout tower to protect these lambs in case there was any raiders or, or wolves or anything else that may hurt or damage the flock. And so the, the shepherds could go to the top of the tower, they could get a good lookout. But at the bottom of the tower, there was also a ceremonial clean place that was used for lambs that were born. These lambs, of course, they couldn't be marked or with blemishes or damages to them. And so when these lambs were born, they were wrapped in literally swaddling bands uh, bands that were used to protect the, the the lamb to stop it kicking out and thrashing around and so this lamb was these lambs were laid into this place that was known as an outcrop in the rock that funny enough was actually called the manger and the lambs were laid there these lambs that were destined for the ta- for the temple sacrifice well it's no surprise therefore although tradition has tried to tell us many other things that we find that in the book of Micah we're actually told categorically that Jesus, when he comes, when the God in, in person comes, he would come to this tower. This would be the place he would come into the world. So it's no surprise that this place that was used for, for these clean lambs to be offered in sacrifice is the place that Jesus is born. And of course, that's why the shepherds of all people were chosen it wasn't just a random selection on that first as we refer to it christmas morning it wasn't a random selection at all these were shepherds whose job it was to make sure and to inspect these lambs and so they come to acknowledge that jesus is the perfect lamb of god 
And so all of these things, you see, even the the Christmas message ties beautifully in with this resurrection message because it speaks of the Lamb of God. Of course, just as an aside, the Magi come sometime later because they come to acknowledge that Jesus is the perfect and rightful king. And there was, of course, a gap, a period of time between the Magi and the shepherds. The shepherds came first, the Magi, anything up to two years later, in the same way. The, the Lamb of God had to come first to be offered and later the King of Kings will return to rule and reign. There's a wonderful symmetry and picture in scriptures. Well, we then go on and we look at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As we said, this would be typically as they got to sundown on the Thursday, uh, the day of the crucifixion, as he gets to six o'clock in the evening, the Feast of Unleavened Bread would begin as Jesus' body was placed in the tomb. Uh, by uh, Joseph and of Arimathea and by Nicodemus. Again, John twelve twenty four says, Unless a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. Jesus spoke that just a week before these events took place. And then we get to the Feast of First Fruits. This is the day of the resurrection. And on the 17th, uh, Jesus rose from the dead. It's the Feast of First Fruits. It's the anniversary as well of when the ark finally came to rest. Uh, we read in, in Genesis of the ark and the time of the flood and so on. But it's the anniversary as they, they step out. The new life beginning on planet Earth uh, after the flood was on the 17th of this very month. The calendar gets changed, but it's the same date. Uh, and so Jesus, in the same way, the, the new life effectively begins on the 17th. Uh, and that's as we saw in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty that Jesus becomes the first fruits of all those who slept. Now, on Thursday evening, in our long study, we went through a number of chapters in John's Gospel. Uh, but we got, we started looking really on the Wednesday evening, the Passover celebration, as Jesus spends time with his disciples. It's interesting what John covers in in five or six chapters Matthew kind of covers over it in about two verses uh, but John gives us so much detail of the events of what took place of what Jesus said that evening so it's so helpful to go through and be reminded we get to the the Thursday of course the day of the crucifixion we looked at some of these details uh, on our study on Thursday evening just gone as Jesus was of course uh, put through these illegal trials and then led out to Pilate uh, and eventually Pilate pronounces him innocent he won't uh, he acknowledges that jesus has done nothing worthy of death but because of the pressure put upon him by the jewish leaders he agrees that jesus should be crucified he hands him over to the soldiers to mock him and to whip him and all those things we read about and eventually jesus is led out to calvary and there he's crucified we'll talk some of those details in a while and then picking up in matthew's gospel this morning in verse 27 sorry chapter 27 verse 50 we read there, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And so Jesus dies on the cross, fulfilling this incredible work that he came to accomplish. And Jesus, as we know, was on the cross for six hours. It's been said before that each hour symbolically speaks of an hour of human history. The world, according to scripture, is some 6,000 years old. And so for each of those thousand years of, of human history of the sin, uh, one hour, again, just accomplishing that redemption, that forgiveness for all that had gone on. But also looking forward to everything that is yet to come. We read in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two, torn in half from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. So this, this incredible events taking place, the temple veil is torn and then this earthquake as well. Now, again, Josephus, the Jewish historian tells us that this veil in the temple was some 60 feet high and about 30 feet wide. Okay, so uh, you work out how high that is. I mean, that's probably most houses somewhere about uh, 25, 30 feet, I guess. So, you know, in terms of the width of the, the, the veil, it's about the height of your house and then double that in terms of the height. And it was woven, Josephus says, as thick as the span of a man's hand. This was an incredibly thick cloth. Uh, it's been estimated it weighed around five tons. And Josephus says that horses that were tied together couldn't even pull this thing apart. And so imagine what it was like as the priests were there officiating in the temple that suddenly there's this earthquake outside. They hear it, no doubt the ground trembling. And suddenly as Jesus dies, as he gives up the ghost, as it were, the, the temple veil is literally torn in two from top to bottom. It occurs at three o'clock, as we said, just as the evening sacrifice were uh, taking place. And, but the book of Acts tells us that many priests came to faith uh, as a result 
of these things they'd seen and of course the the witness Solomon records actually that there was an earthquake in Jerusalem about 40 years before the temple was destroyed we're told also that the graves were open and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many so another staggering thing now just think about this because it had been absolutely impossible to write and circulate this if it didn't happen the gospel writers and we know historically we've got plenty of evidence to show the gospels were written very very close to these events not hundreds of years later as critics have tried to say no they were written within a few years of these things in fact we know that probably um matthew or even mark's gospel could have been in this country within two to three years of the resurrection it just shows how early these things were circulating if you want to dig into that more i encourage you to look at uh some of the work of bill cooper particularly authenticity of the new testament it goes through a number of these things. Um, but, you know, it would have been possible to write down that people came out of the grave and walked around if it didn't happen. Because immediately people would discredit it and, and the gospel would have never gone anywhere. Nobody would have read these uh, farcical Jewish documents, you know, that have been written by his disciples if clearly they were just full of fabrication errors. And yet we know that the gospel spread so quickly around all of uh, Jerusalem and Judea and then, of course, Samaria and then to the ends of the earth again if it was false it would have just been discredited and then we're told in verse 54 now when the centurion and they that were with him watching jesus notice what they were doing they were looking at jesus and they saw the earthquake and those things that were done they feared greatly saying truly this was the son of god what an amazing statement from gentiles you know, it had been supernaturally dark for three hours by this point. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But this centurion now making this declaration that Jesus, the one that he is just and his soldiers have just crucified and put on the cross, that Jesus is the son of God. Something dramatic was going on in this man's life for this to make to for him to make this statement. Now, I just want to take you through this. Um because this is the first Gentile convert we have in Scripture. I'll just take you through nine events very quickly that made a believer out of this Roman centurion. Well, firstly, Pilate had declared Jesus innocent. Again, Luke's gospel in this unprecedented move. Pilate says to the mob that are gathered, I have found in him no guilt. What an amazing statement for somebody who then handed over to these soldiers to kill. So as Pilate hands Jesus over to the centurion, instead of hearing the crimes that have been committed against the state that justify the death sentence, this centurion and his soldiers watch, and according to Matthew's account, Pilate washes hands in this ceremonial manner and say, I am innocent of this man's blood. Now that must have gotten the attention of this centurion. You know, he was used to, and he'd given his life to protect and uphold the law of the land, and particularly Roman law. And his leader has just announced that the criminal who he's about to crucify has never broken the law. Now, that must have been a very strange situation. Now, the second thing is Jesus's words to the women. As Jesus is carried off and carrying his cross on the way out to Calvary, en route, the centurion of soldiers would have heard Jesus make this unusual statement to the women who were weeping at the sight of this Jew being put to death by the Romans. Now, some of those women might not necessarily have known Jesus. It's not necessarily his disciples that are in view here, but just those women that are looking on this, this horrible situation, this man that's been disfigured and so on by the beatings. You know, and yet Jesus shows compassion for other people who are themselves in trouble, who are also going to die. In fact, the, the, the words that Jesus says is, you know, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Now, again, imagine the impression that must have made on this centurion. It must have seemed odd, you know, to soldiers that were well worn by kind of crying and those that have been condemned, you know, used to hearing them cry for mercy. But he hears this man, Jesus, now caring for, showing compassion for those that are themselves in a, a real dangerous situation as jesus was effectively warning them of what was to come upon them you know jesus is about to endure this excruciating death but he's not thinking of himself he's thinking of others now that again must be highly unusual for the centurion 
Uh, the third thing is that Jesus on the cross was offered this drink, a narcotic effectively. It was anesthetic, something that would have numbed the pain. Again, history records that the daughters of Jerusalem, out of compassion for the condemned, would often provide some uh, drink, as we've just spoken of, uh, mixed with uh, myrrh and with wine and so on. But it was designed to numb the pain of that one, the one on the cross. But Mark tells us that when Jesus is offered this, it's a typical thing that would have happened. Crucifixion wasn't uncommon. That when Jesus was offered this, he refuses it. He didn't take it. Mark fifteen twenty three tells us that. Why didn't he take it? Well, quite simply, Jesus had work to do on the cross. He had things to say and he didn't want to be in a stupor. He didn't want to have his senses dulled so that he couldn't explain or say what he wanted to say. Every word that he said he knew needed to be trusted and not the result of some uh, drug that was in his system. So he refuses this again so that every final act could be recorded. Well, the fourth thing then is that Jesus also then forgives those crucifying him. Now, often, you know, we, we, we assume that these words we read from Luke 23, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. We often think that that is a statement about the, the Jewish leadership, Father, forgive them. But of course, the Sanhedrin knew exactly what they were doing. They knew what they were uh, doing in terms of crucifying Jesus, and they knew his claims. Of course, the soldiers didn't. And so Jesus says to, as they're literally nailing him to the cross, as they're hoisting him up uh, onto the cross, he's, he's saying, Father, forgive them. What, what an incredible statement. Uh, it's un unlikely they've ever experienced anything like this at all. Let me just, just kind of get you to picture the scene if you can. So the Savior's body, again, twisting in pain with each blow of a hammer, being jolted, it was raised up onto the saddle on the cross, you know, further followed by hammering through his feet, praise aloud, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Again, imagine any criminal these men had ever executed looking at them and offering prayers of forgiveness. And again, Jesus keeps praying, notice, to the father now the romans would have known enough about jewish customs and jewish law and so on to know that no jew ever called god their father but jesus is speaking of god as his father now that has got to get the attention of this centurion and those that were with him Again, the centurion had also listened to Pilate declare him innocent, as we mentioned. He'd heard that he heard Jesus warn this group of women, you know, that he was not in danger with God, but that they were. And the centurion also watched as Christ refused to take this drink, this narcotic, to numb his senses. And then he hears him offer forgiveness to his soldiers for what they were doing. So by now, that centurion must have been thinking, just who is this man? Well. The fifth thing we see is that grace was clearly shown to the thief that was on the cross. You know the situation. There was two other thieves on the, or two other uh, criminals on the cross. We're told they were thieves uh, being crucified. But one of them cries out and says, "Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom." Well, there can be very little doubt that the centurion had already mulled over the meaning of the words that had been placed on that board above Jesus' head. And you remember, it speaks of uh, you know Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, written in three different languages. And again, the soldier now hears one of the condemned cry out to Jesus in faith. And in this moment, while they both hang on the cross as well, asking Jesus to allow him to enter into Jesus' kingdom. The sign says that Jesus is a king. And this declaration now from this thief on the cross that the centurion would have heard is saying, Jesus, let me come into your kingdom with you. And Jesus doesn't, you know, belittle it. He doesn't. I uh, say, so, oh, you know, you've got it wrong. Uh, do I look like a king? Do I, do you think there's a kingdom waiting for me and all that I'm going through? You know, instead, the centurion and his soldiers must have been shocked to hear Jesus reply from Luke 23, verse 43. Truly, I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. In other words, I am the king of the Jews. I am the Messiah and there is a kingdom belonging to me and I will give you entrance. Now, it's again after these words that nature starts to play a part in the proceedings. You know, again, nature firmly in the, the grip of God, the creator, uh, starts to lend voice to all that's going on here. And so the sixth, the sixth thing that would have changed the heart of this hardened Roman uh, uh, soldier, this centurion, this Gentile, is that the darkness sweeps in and covers the land. Now, Matthew and Luke tell us that darkness just covers the earth, blankets the earth at the sixth hour. And it lasts until the night. That's three hours. Now, the sixth hour is midday. It's 12 o'clock, 12 noon. It's, it's when the sun's normally at its zenith. It's brightest. 
But suddenly the sun is turned off like a light bulb. Now, interestingly, there are sources outside the Bible that indicate that the darkness was actually global. It wasn't just localized to Jerusalem. For example, there is a letter that we have record of that Pilate writes later after these events to Emperor Tiberius. Uh, and he says that it was dark from 12 to 3. And he writes it as if Tiberius would have known all about it. Because, of course, even in Rome, Tiberius would have known of this darkness. It would have affected the people there at this time as well. Now, again, there's no doubt that the soldiers quickly would have started a fire, that have lit torches. You know, this darkness was a thick darkness from what we understand, very similar to that which you read about in the, the plagues in Egypt, uh, that God brings darkness upon the land. It's a supernatural darkness. And so they'd have lit these torches. You know, this was quite a big moment uh, and quite eerie, quite scary. Some of you may have uh, real or been, been part of an eclipse. I remember some years ago there was an eclipse, and it's really eerie. All of a sudden, as the, the, it's dark everywhere, the birds stop singing. And it's a really strange, strange feeling. Well, this would have been that kind of thing. Now, from this point forward, everything starts to change. The rabbis, of course, have taught for centuries that the darkening of the sun was a judgment from God. Uh, and there's no more mocking or jeering from this point on. Everyone seems to sense now that God's hand is somehow involved. And the centurion must have noticed that the religious leaders all start to slip away. This isn't funny anymore. The, the kind of public spectacle that they were expecting, they were looking forward to, suddenly is no more the thing they thought it was going to be. You know, again, Luke tells us that after Jesus dies, the crowd that is still at the scene returned to Jerusalem. And we're told that they were weeping and in deep contrition. No more they were shouting out, crucify, crucify. Suddenly, a real sense of of uh, of awe and seemingly of grief starts to fall upon these people. <clears throat> and again, during these three hours of darkness, Jesus will make more statements. Well, one of them, when we see Jesus crying out to God, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the centurion, again, is unlikely to have missed this. That up until now, Jesus has spoken of God as Father. Now, he calls, to, he calls out to him as his God. My God, my God. The, the tone changes. And for the first time in Scripture, also, Jesus doesn't address God as his Father. Because that intimate communion, that relationship with God, had been broken. Because Jesus had become sin for us. We read in Isaiah 53. Verse 5, that Jesus takes upon himself our transgressions. 2 Corinthians 5.21, that Jesus who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Galatians 3.13 tells us that Jesus became a curse for us. In Romans 4.25, that Jesus is delivered up because of our transgressions. And again in 1 Peter 2.24, that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. That's why that communion, that fellowship with God was broken. That's why Jesus doesn't refer to God as father at that point, because from that moment, he's standing in our shoes. He's paying our price for our sin. And it's unlikely the centurion would have missed this. The eighth thing, of course, is Jesus in declaration of victory. So after the three hours, Jesus cries out to Telestine, literally paid in full. And the gospel was being delivered there in just one word. Jesus didn't cry out, I am finished. But it is finished, the work that God had brought him to do. And literally, if you look at the tense of the, the words in the Greek, it is it is finished and it always will be finished. And it's just an incredible statement. It's so beautiful in terms of gives us joy, gives us hope. Uh, but the centurion must have thought, what a strange word for a dying man to cry. You'd think that there'd be anything other than a declaration of victory that I've accomplished that which I came to do. But of course, it's not strange for the Christian because it's a cry of the believer's deliverance, a shout of their forgiveness. And again, it's the declaration of our eternal justification. Well, <clears throat> it's not the end of the story at this point because it's merely picking up speed. Because Luke then includes the final word, as Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, the centurion Again, we've heard Jesus reverting back now to calling God Father. Why? Well, because it was done. The work was completed. So now Jesus speaks of God as Father again. And again, in that darkness on the cross, Christ had paid the eternal sacrifice for our sins. And now, no longer abandoned, Christ offers up his spirit to the care of his Father. <clears throat> and then the final thing that would have been, if, if there was not already enough here for that centurion to change his hardened mind forever, 
At this point, there's this great earthquake. As Christ bows his head in death, Matthew records and elsewhere in the Gospels, uh, that the earth began to shudder and shake so violently that the rocks split apart. I mean, we don't get earthquakes in this country. Some of you may have been elsewhere in the world and you've experienced earthquakes. But to have a, an earthquake of this kind of magnitude, where the, literally the rocks were, were splitting apart, would be quite frightening. But again, throughout the course of Jewish history, an earthquake was also uh, viewed as a sign of God's presence which is exactly what we have here. It was true enough to a, a gentle Roman soldier. He, this is, he'd seen enough by this point. So it's no wonder now at this point, the centurion that stood at the cross cries out and says, truly, this was the son of God. And it all makes sense, of course. It's the, the compassion, the dignity, the promise of the kingdom, the communion or the communication rather with God, his father, the darkness and the earthquake. You know, what a, a testimony to this first Gentile convert now again a roman soldier is the first gentile convert after the death of christ at this conversion at calvary and from luke's account the centurion was not quiet about his conversion either because the text is he began praising god that's a believing heart and of course the alleluias of the cross came first from the lips of a redeemed centurion what a great story this is and he came to faith beneath the dead saviour's cross and he believed that this dead man was indeed the king with a coming kingdom that means he knew that jesus wasn't finished that there was a coming kingdom the son of god well let's just carry on in our text from here because then when the even was come there was a rich man of arimathea named joseph who also himself was jesus's disciple he went to pilate and begged the body of jesus then pilate commanded the body to be delivered some victims of crucifixion, interestingly, could last many days. I think 14 days was the, also 13 days was the longest recorded. Uh, the shortest one was 32 hours. So for Jesus to have died in this really short time was quite a surprise. But nevertheless, to fulfill the scriptures, because Jesus needed to be put into the ground as the first, at least the first fruits began. Then Jesus, of course, uh, as he gave up the ghost, he died. Again, to fulfill a prophecy, not a bone of Jesus was broken as they came to break the legs of the, the criminals to speed up the death process so they couldn't push up and breathe. Uh, Jesus was already dead, so no need to do that. Uh, so there's simply the spear is put into his side. Now, Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man, notable. I mean, certainly with some sort of status and position because he's got that uh, ability to go up to Pilate ask for the body uh he was obviously held in very high regard he's actually called an honorable counselor we believe he was a member of the sanhedrin as well uh mark fifteen forty three tells us this phrase interestingly only 14 other individuals in the history of the nation are given that title of honorable counselor this is a man with great wealth great position and at this point He's willing to give it all up because he and Nicodemus are both granted the body of Jesus and that very act would cause them to be excommunicated and lose their office. They'd have lost that place on the Sanhedrin from this point because the Jewish authorities would have not tolerated Jesus' disciples being on the Sanhedrin from this moment. Of course, they take Jesus, they anoint him, they put him in Joseph's tomb. Um, interestingly, in 1885, you can see a picture of the tomb there. Um, the British general, uh, General Gordon, discovered the tomb. It was just outside the Damascus Gate uh, from Herod's era. It's still there. Uh, they, they would have taken Jesus up to Golgotha originally. And then just to the side of Golgotha, you have this tomb. Uh, and in front of the tomb, there was a large stone that was rolled in place there. Well... The first thing that General Gordon did when he went into this tomb that he discovered before they let anyone else in was to take scrapings from the place that was carved uh, where the bodies would have been laid in this tomb. And they found no evidence, interestingly, of human decomposition. In other words, no corpse had been left to decay in this tomb. Now, just think about this, because this is a rock face that a tomb has been carved by hand into. That's a lot of work. If you've ever tried chiseling or working with rock, it's not an easy material to work with. There was enough room for a family, effectively, to be buried in this tomb. But only one of the areas was actually finished and ready for a body to be laid on. OK, uh, the other two spots were incomplete. Now, the interesting thing is that whoever's tomb this was, was so wealthy that they could have afforded to have people carving into this tomb, into the side of the, this rock face, with hammer and chisel to make the tomb, but then only finish the first spot and never bother finishing the rest of the tomb and never then bury anybody in it. I mean, this is really quite interesting, quite significant. That's uh, just a view picture from the inside of the tomb that you can see there. 
Okay, and this was the place, it's difficult to see from the pictures, but uh, this is the place that on that morning of the resurrection, we'll look at the details in just a second. This is the place where those angels would have been. So we get to the 15th now. After the crucifixion, after Jesus' body's been put into this tomb, then we get to the feast of uh, unleavened bread. The next day, of course, because it was a high Sabbath, that's one of the reasons they had to get the bodies down. That's why they had to anoint Jesus' body first and so on. Um, this again, a high, high, high day. We read in Matthew 27. Now the next day that followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate saying, Sir, we remember that the, the deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command therefore that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, and so the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, You have a watch. In other words, okay, take a, take a band of men, take a, some soldiers. Go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. As I said already, there was a big stone that was rolled in front of this, this tomb. We get to the, the Saturday now. Uh, this is a regular weekly Sabbath. So again, no work is permitted. The, the ladies, the women couldn't get to the tomb because in between the Jesus being put into the ground. And this point, again, we've just had these two back-to-back Sabbaths, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Saturday Sabbath, where no work was permitted. So they couldn't come and anoint the body of Jesus, which is why when we get to the Sunday, it's the first time that women can go to the tomb. And of course, then brings us to the day of resurrection. I just want to just take you through just very quickly through the gospel narrative of these events, just so you see the flow from all the gospels to combine. So just going to pick it up in Mark chapter 16, verse one. It says, and when the Sabbath it's actually plural, Sabbaths were passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulchre? Of course, they didn't know what had happened at this point. They expect that a big stone is going to be there. And they're wondering who is going to move it. They had no idea, by the way, that the Romans were there. Because we've got that narrative that we know that the Romans were, were sent to guard the tomb at the request of the Jewish leadership. But the, the ladies didn't know that. They just thought that they were going to come to a tomb that was on its own. Nobody was going to be there. And they had to figure out a way of moving this stone. But we read, and behold, there was a great earthquake. Do you remember what earthquakes typically speak of? We said a moment ago, they speak of the presence of God all through scripture. And behold, there was a great earthquake for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. Well, there's the problem of how you're going to move the stone. You just get a great angel to do it. And we thought his countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And we're told, and for fear of him, the keepers did shake and become as dead men. So these are the Roman soldiers. We'll talk about them in a moment. But they are absolutely terrified at this sight that they're seeing. And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. Picking up in Matthew's Gospel in 20, Matthew 28, verse 5. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Remember, Jesus said many times that he was going to rise again. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. Back into Mark's gospel. And entering into the sepulchre, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment. And they were affrighted. And he said unto them, Be not affrighted. Seek ye, or so you seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. Behold the place where they laid him. Verse 7 of Mark 16, but go your way, tell his disciples and Peter, notice that, not tell all the disciples, just go tell them, but tell the disciples and Peter. Peter is no longer classed as a disciple at this moment, and I'll explain why. Tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee, there shall you see him as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulchre, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man. For they were afraid. And it came to pass as they were much perplexed. Now in Luke's gospel, Luke 24, they're about, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Luke was a, a medical doctor, we understand. And he says there were two men. Now, some people think these were angels. I don't, because it doesn't say there were two angels. It says there were two men. 
And I believe they were two men. And I think it's interesting, as we'll talk about in a moment, as to which two men they could have been. Two men that were called to be there on the morning of the resurrection at the tomb. We'll come back to that. As they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek you the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he spoke unto you when he was yet in Galilee? saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. So all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, Jesus did say that, didn't he? Starting to, the penny starting to drop. And returned from the sepulchre and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. Of course, Judas no longer with this group. He's killed himself by now. The eleven disciples now are being told of all these things. <clears throat> And then we read in uh, John 20, verse 2, Then she runneth and cometh Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre and we know not where they have laid him. See, they're struggling to believe, even though they're getting these testimonies that Jesus is risen, they're still not believing. There's still a lot of unbelief here. And we thought it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. Seemingly, Mary Magdalene uh, runs and gets there first. She's younger than the others, seemingly. Um, and she tells uh, Peter and John. And we're told, but we're told their words seem to them as idle tales, and they believe them not. Peter, therefore, went forth, and that other disciple, again, John never mentions himself in his own gospel, but this is John, uh, and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together. And the other disciple did outrun Peter. John just sl- slips that in there. I was faster than Peter was. And came first to the sepulcher. And stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes laying, yet went he not in. Why didn't John go in? Well, John was concerned because he knew under Jewish law custom that to go into a tomb, you would uh, be defiled if you did so. Of course, Peter has no such concern. Why? Well, because he knows he's already undone all that he previously done in terms of following Jesus, claiming to be a disciple, because he'd made that declaration that I don't know this man. Three times he said, I am not a disciple of Jesus Christ. And Jesus tells us, we'll look at the scripture in a moment, that by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned. As a result of this, when the angel is telling the, the women to go, and to, or this man is telling the, the women to go and tell the disciples, is tell the disciples and Peter. We read, Then came Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulchre and seeing the linen clothes lie and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but wrapped together in a place by itself. No meaningless details in scripture. Okay, this napkin this, 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 uh, is there. It's been folded neatly. Okay, why did Jesus do that? Well, we'll come to that in a second. Then went in also the other disciple, this is John now, which came first to the sepulchre, and he saw and believed. But in case you're getting excited, thinking he's now believing that Jesus is risen. No, that's not the case. Now he believes that the tomb is empty. Okay, that's what he believed. For as yet, we're told, they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. In other words, they didn't understand it, although they'd heard it, they hadn't, hadn't really sunk in. But then the disciples went away again unto their own home. But Mary stood without at the sepulchre weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre. And now we're told, and seeing two angels, now we have angels here, in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. What a lovely picture of the mercy seat with those cherubim either end. And they say unto her, woman, why weepest thou? And she said unto them, because they have taken away my Lord. And I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said unto her, Mary. And she turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Suddenly she realizes that this is Jesus. Jesus said unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father, and to my God and your God. Matthew 28 verse 9 carries on. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. And then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren 
that they go into Galilee and there shall they see me. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that she had spoken these and that he had spoken these things unto her. You can't over dramatize just how amazing this must have been. Let me just give you a quick recap of this. So the women were the first to get to the guarded tomb. Of course, they didn't know it was guarded, but they're the first ones to get there on the morning after the Sabbath. It was the first opportunity that they could get there. And this angel, we're told, descends and moves the stone. The guards that are there absolutely freeze in fear. The women, though, are encouraged to look inside by this angel and they realize that Jesus' body is not there. But another angel reminds them what Jesus said. Uh, Then they are told to go and tell his disciples and Peter. Again, just let me take you back to John eighteen seventeen. Do you remember the verse where Jesus betrayed, taken by the, the, the Jewish leadership um, to the high priest's house? Uh, we read John eighteen seventeen. Then saith the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Peter waiting outside in the courtyard, Art not thou also one of his man's disciples? And he said, I am not. Okay, that statement that he makes and again matthew twelve thirty seven. by the words uh, by thy words i shall be justified and by thy words shall thou be condemned now at the end of john's gospel jesus gives uh, peter the opportunity to come back into the fold as it were this has by the way nothing to do with salvation as such but this is just simply showing the power of words and why we need to be careful about the things we say because later jesus three times will ask peter do you love me you know, are you my disciple? Do you follow me? And gives Peter that opportunity to, in a sense, undo those foolish statements he made because of fear a little earlier. Well, we carry on. Then the uh, the woman then flee from the tomb because of the whole experience and also no doubt because of the guards, because they didn't know the guards had been there. Now suddenly they're aware the guards are there, although the guards themselves are frightened. Um, and the guards then go back to the high priest and report all of these things that have happened. Uh, of course, they head back the the uh, women to the, to where the disciples were. But as they leave, they encounter two men. Now, Doctor Luke, as I said, tells us they were men. Who were they, and why were they there? Well, the number two is an indication because all the way through Scripture, two is always a number that refers to witness or witnesses. Okay, so that's a clue. Let me just take you back to Luke chapter nine because we're told there in chapter in verse thirty. That this is just after Jesus had been at Caesarea Philippi in the north of Israel. He goes up to the top of Mount Hermon and behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias. Now Luke again uses that expression, there were two men, and he tells us who they were, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease. Notice what that conversation was on Mount Hermon. Why were Moses and Elijah called to that meeting with Jesus? Because they wanted to discuss, Jesus wanted to discuss with them that which he should accomplish at Jerusalem, all to do with his decease. And that's why these witnesses are called to this event, I believe. And we told him, Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were awake, they saw his glory, and the two men that stood with him. I believe that the two men that were at the tomb were Moses and Elijah. Why were they there? Because God will never leave himself without a witness, we're told in Scripture. And there had to be someone there, or two people, to witness the resurrection. And I believe that that's exactly what Moses and Elijah were called to do. And interestingly, we have two witnesses that will occur in Revelation chapter 11 that will again give great testimony during that time of tribulation. I believe exactly the same two witnesses, Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. So Mary, again being younger, arrives back first to the group and then the other women arrive. Peter and John go to investigate. Of course, it's a dangerous mission. They don't know what they're going to find. What about the guards? Were they still there? They didn't know they'd left by that point. Well, John tells us he can outrun Peter, arrives first, he sees the grave clothes. Peter then arrives, goes straight in, no concern about defilement for him now. He's got nothing left to lose. Peter notices, John records the napkin. Is that significant? You know, why did Jesus bother to fold this napkin, this, this linen cloth, after his resurrection? And is it significant? Well, of course it is. All details are significant. With a, a Jewish meal, typically the master, if he left the table briefly and was coming back, would fold the napkin and leave it there as a sign that I'm coming back. If that napkin was scrunched up and just thrown onto the table, then it was a sign saying, I'm finished, I'm done. So any Jewish servant would have understood that. And I'm sure these disciples got the meaning. As they looked at this napkin, folded, it spoke and said, I'm coming back. You must have, the, the, the intensity and the, the emotion must have started to build. So Peter and John then go home. 
Believing that the tomb was empty, Mary then remains, sees the two angels in the tomb, just as the angels that sat at either end of the mercy seat. Again, these angels are sitting either end of the place where Jesus' body lay, and no doubt the blood had been sprinkled just as it was on the mercy seat. Mary then turns and sees Jesus, but thinks he's the gardener. Why? Well, maybe because he looked different. Maybe because his beard had been plucked out from what we understand from Isaiah. Maybe because if our eyes are focused on our problems, we can't behold Jesus. And there's a lesson in that for us. But Jesus then reveals himself to Mary. Now, just note that nothing had actually changed. In this split second, Mary's perception as it had been, you know, all that had changed, uh, sorry, nothing had changed except Mary's perception. Her, Her eyes are now turned from her own predicament, from the problem as she perceives it, to beholding Jesus. I love that statement of Oswald Chambers. He says that God will alter the trying circumstances in two seconds when he chooses. Our job is to look at Jesus, just like Peter when he steps out on the water. If we're looking at Jesus, we don't reckon with the problems around us. Well, then Jesus meets the other women en route. He bids them to hurry and tell the rest, and then he'll meet them in Galilee. Why hurry? Well, because there's a rumor already starting to circulate in Jerusalem at this point. We read in Matthew that, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, to Pilate's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. We'll, 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 we'll deal with it for you. Don't worry. Just just tell our lie for us is what they're saying. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Why did they take the money? Well, they had no other option. Because if it had been discovered that they were guarding a tomb and this tomb had been somehow opened and that the body inside had been taken out, however it occurred, they would have lost their jobs. We'll talk about it in just a second because these weren't just any old group of soldiers. This was what was referred to as a royal guard. This watch okay, was made up of high, 16 highly trained Roman soldiers. Each of them would have a spear and a short sword and a dagger. Uh, each man also would have five javelins inside a curved shield. Their primary weapon, though, was a sling. They were absolutely expert at using a sling and they were trained to hit a target some 70 feet away. They were, if you like, the the SAS, or the special forces of their day. And if a commanding officer came and found just one of those guards asleep, all 16 in the guard would have been killed. Okay, On any assignment they were on, if any of them had been asleep, all of them would have lost their life. That means they don't fall asleep. You know, if one fell asleep and the other guard, sorry, if one fell asleep, the other guards would therefore set their tunic on fire. That again stops it. In around about 390 AD, a little sometime after this time, about 400 years later, as Rome was beginning to fall apart, the then Caesar commanded Flavius uh, Veratus Ronitus, who was a historian, to search the archives for military and tactical inspiration. And as a result, they got the information about this elite unit and they reconstructed this group and they put them through the same kind of training because they recognized how good they were. Now, the tomb would have been sealed either with wax or with clay, and no doubt the Roman emblem would have been put on it. Ropes would have been put across the stone with the seal of Rome at the center. Now, if anyone had broken that seal, the punishment would have been to be crucified upside down. Again, if they couldn't catch you, they'd crucify upside down every man, woman, and child in your village. So that tomb really was sealed and secure, and these guards really were protecting it. Well, we carry on. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought sweet spices uh, that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the sepulchre at the rising of the sun. Again, they asked about who was going to move that. Again, as I said, they didn't know the Roman guard were there. We spoke about that earthquake and the way that these soldiers were, were absolutely fearful. Now, how do we know this detail? How do we know that information? Because the, the women were at the tomb at that point. They were en route to the tomb. So how do we know that the guards were shaking? Well, we have no other source other than the eyewitness testimony of the guards themselves. So who did the guards tell? Well, in Israel, they were, of course, tax collectors who would stay in their office and do paperwork. And there were others who would go out and collect taxes from the public, who were known as publicans. Matthew was one of the latter. He was known as a publican. And because he collected taxes from the public, those taxes were for Rome. 
he would always be accompanied by Roman soldiers, typically these kind of individuals that we've been speaking about. And they, these individuals would have a shield and a spear to signify the authority of Rome. Matthew is the only gospel writer to tell us what happened at the tomb. Then an angel came down and rolled the stone away. And then what happened in the discussion with Pilate? That was behind closed doors, but we have a record of it in scripture. And that the soldiers didn't go to Pilate first when they fled, but they went to the priests. And that the priests paid the soldiers to keep quiet. What we have in Matthew's gospel in this verse we looked at in a moment ago, what we have is the record that no doubt Matthew's friends effectively, the soldiers that for years now he'd been working alongside, had told him of all that had taken place. And so we're told in verse 15 of Matthew 28, so they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now, just imagine saying that as a witness in a courtroom, what these decide, what these soldiers have been told to say, you know, your honor, it was the disciples. They came and stole the body. How do you know that? Uh, well, I was asleep when it happened. Well, that's not a pretty good testimony, is it? So the whole idea, this message that got propagated was so foolish. It was so full of errors and holes um, that it's no wonder the gospel just was promoted and propagated so easily from this point. And of course, that brings us finally to the evening of the resurrection itself. After Jesus, again, he's already revealed himself to those disciples we've seen. But then in John 20, 19, we read then the same day at even being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, okay, because this rumor is now circulating that the disciples have done all this, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. Jesus' body no longer bound by physical restrictions that we experience and know, but now in his new resurrected body, the first fruits of all those who will rise will have bodies like his one day. Again, Jesus stands in the room. And then we read in John 20, 20 to 22. And when he had said so, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Now they really believe. Now it's already starting to sink in that Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. He's a risen savior. And then Jesus said unto them, peace be unto you as my father has sent me. Even so, notice I send you. They're being commissioned. We're being commissioned from this point. And when he said thus, he breathed on them and said unto them, receive ye the Holy Ghost. Literally from this moment, they are born again. This is the moment the Holy Spirit enters them because now Jesus has risen. And Jesus had promised that this Holy Spirit would come. And they are literally born again from this moment. It's a little bit later, we get to Pentecost and they receive the power of the Holy Spirit. But the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples at this very moment. And then we read in Matthew's gospel, the 11 disciples went into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted, were told. And Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go you therefore and teach all nations. That's the word in the Greek implies ethnic groups, every group of people you can find. Okay, so this is to go, therefore, and teach every group. People that we meet on our our daily school runs, when we get back to school runs, or we bump into in supermarkets, or in our workplace, or if we go on foreign missions, if we go to to the mission field, wherever we go, whatever groups of people, this is what we're told to do. Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. And notice, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, And Jesus says this, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Amen. There's a great song by the Christian singer-songwriter who's now with the Lord in glory, Keith Green. Uh, And the words of the song are, Jesus commands us to go. It's the exception if we stay. You know, we are blessed to have within our fellowship uh, two individuals that are part of our fellowship because two young ladies made that decision to go to the mission field. Of course, we're speaking of Yana and Sarah and their willingness to step out in faith and the lives that have been brought to the Lord through their ministry and their example. And, and the same for all of us. We've been called to go and, and we may not be all called to go overseas or to travel to do you know, missionary work as such. But we are all missionaries. The word of God tells us that we're his ambassadors. You know, so as we just conclude this this morning, I want to just really encourage you with the things that we've seen. Knowing now that 
we have this incredible history, legacy, these, these facts. The resurrection is a fact of history. But it's not just for us to sit here and go, oh, isn't it lovely? You know, we feel comfortable. No, it's for us now to go and to share this with others. Let's bow our hearts. Father God, we just thank you for this time this morning. Lord, please stir our hearts with these things. Lord, we want to be excited and encouraged and blessed by this news, by these things that we've been reminded of. But Lord, may we also be stirred. You have commanded us to go. Lord, let us go to all those that we know. Lord, everybody that you place before us and let us be willing to share the good news that Jesus is risen from the dead. And because of that, there is no need for fear of death or of separation from God for eternity. There is no need to fear or worry of sin. All of this has been paid for. It has been paid for now and forever. We just thank you, Jesus, for these things. We thank you that you are a resurrected, risen Savior, seated at the right hand of the Father. Oh, Lord, we long to see you with our own eyes. But we thank you for these things now, this morning, on this resurrection day, in Jesus' name. Amen.